Hey, this is Free City Radio. Thanks for joining us. Um, this is the sixth edition of the podcast. Um, of course, we broadcast every Wednesday at 11 a.m. on CKUT Radio in Montreal. People-powered radio, community radio, um, long-live community radio. But recently uh, have launched this podcast effort. Um, so uh, it has taken place in the context of the global pandemic of COVID-19. I've been recording this series here at home. Um, so it's been a pleasure to be with you and uh, we have a lot of different voices that will be coming at you uh, on the program today, the sixth edition. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph, so thanks for being with us. First on the show today, I wanted to play a short clip uh, from a worker at the Resilience Centre here in Montreal. Just for a little bit of background, uh, the Resilience Centre in Montreal is doing frontline support service for homeless people, people struggling with poverty. Um, it's a center that is connected to the Native Women's Shelter and it's close to the Atwater Metro uh, here in Montreal. They do a daily food serving and also it's an opportunity for people to share blankets um, and also for people to get food, charge their phone, um, basically a, a, a daytime support service and, and this organization does service a lot of um, and support a lot of uh, homeless people, but particularly parts of the indigenous urban Aboriginal community that is struggling with poverty and homelessness. Um, I've been able to go by Resilience Center a couple of times to uh, volunteer, and I got to meet uh, Sam, uh, who's one of the main cooks at the center. And I asked him if he would like to share a few words here on Free City Radio Podcasts. So here's Sam. My name is Sam Shewitt, and I work at Resilience Montreal. For those of you who don't know, Resilience is a day shelter for people experiencing homelessness across the street from Cabot Square. Open to everyone, providing food and shelter, as well as mental health and medical support. It has been such an incredible experience being a part of this project. I remember in the fall being one of the 200 volunteers coming by to renovate the building from the old sushi restaurant into what it is today. Due to the whole COVID-19 situation, however, we've unfortunately had to close our doors and move all services to the park next door, which has been an adventure to say the least. We've seen a huge increase in numbers and are now putting out roughly 500 meals a day which would not be possible if not for the incredible team of volunteers that come in every day with smiles on their faces, ready to help, including you, Stefan. We've also had such an amazing response from the community in regards to donations. People have been bringing chilies cooked at home, sandwiches, pastas, and clothing. I think it is especially important right now to help out at places like Resilience because people experiencing homelessness, when the government tells everyone that they have to self-isolate and stay at home, they don't exactly have a place they can isolate to. And so I think it's so important that the community responds to this crisis and everyone comes together to make sure no one is left in, left on the outskirts in this situation. We've seen a few deaths already in the community and it's been quite heartbreaking so yeah we're all in this together the situation isn't going away anytime soon so for anyone listening that wants to help out 
here's some things we're in need of right now. Sandwiches, homemade chilies, pastas, and in regards to clothing, underwear, socks, shoes, jeans, sweatshirts, sweaters, sweatpants, jackets, and blankets. Thank you so much for listening, everyone, and have a wonderful day. Bye. That was Sam, um, one of the workers at the Resilience Center in Montreal. Um, do look them up if you would like to support. Um, this is a very important frontline service organization uh, in Montreal, supporting people in poverty, struggling with homelessness. You can find them online at resiliencemontreal.com. Uh, Next on the show today, I wanted to highlight uh, the voice of a filmmaker and activist, Razan El Salah, uh, who has made numerous uh, films speaking to the realities of Palestine, of the Palestinian diaspora. Razan has also been active in um, supporting the revolution, the protests for social and economic justice that have been taking place in Lebanon over the past year. So I recorded a conversation with Razan about the, the protests and what this context of pandemic means for social movements in Lebanon. Very directly speaking, uh, the government is using this time to dismantle uh, any kind of presence uh, or infrastructure uh, for the revolution, right? Um, it's using this quarantine time to crack down on activists, to pass uh, laws, including like the Bistri Valley project with uh, with the World Bank. Um, could could you negotiations with the IMF? Yeah, could you could you talk about those two things uh, just for people who aren't familiar? Yeah, of course. So uh, the Bistri Valley is. Um, lush, fertile uh, land in southern Lebanon that, um, you know, the revolutionaries uh, very recently decided to, um, you know, to, to, to uh, announce the area as uh, reserved. Um, and the revolution has been, and, and particularly Save the Bistri Valley campaign, that's the name of, uh, of, the, of the actual campaign, and you can find it on, on Facebook if anyone's interested to follow their news, um, has been actively uh, fighting against uh, a government uh, dam project. Um, that is set to build a dam in the Bisri Valley uh, under the, um, you know, the promise, of course, the scientifically uh, false promise of providing water for Greater Beirut. Um, of course, we all know today um, how dams are uh, not, are ecologically unsound, um, and financially disastrous, and it's kind of uh, you know it's good to expand on on this example um, because it's really uh, exemplary to a larger problem in Lebanon, um, where you have um, the the oligarchy, right, the political ruling elite, um, who uh, 
you know, privatize uh, uh, public areas or uh, and extract resources um, and um, turn them into very expensive projects that allow for uh, this corrupt uh, extraction of not just resources, but um, but uh, you know. Uh, um, I'm trying to translate from Arabic <laughs> all the time, uh, which no is, you know, it's 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 one of the features of this revolution is that that it's it's been uh, very much kind of a return to to uh, the Arabic language as a political language, um, which is kind of novice for for Lebanon. So so yeah, so so the the Bisri Valley is another expensive project that is infested with corruption and is leaking um, m- uh, more uh, uh, loan-based uh, money to an already disproportionately uh, rich 1% um, that also controls the government. Um, and, uh, and, and the loans, of course, are taken... Um, uh, in, you know, um, by the Lebanese government, and so they fall um, as a burden on the Lebanese public and uh, and not the, the ruling class. Um, and so you have this 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 uh, exemplary kind of project, exemplary to a larger uh, problem where you have uh, uh, the ruling elite. Um, Taking privatizing public spaces, mm-hmm. uh, extracting resources, and and uh, um, you know uh, uh, oppressing a whole uh, uh, nation uh, under disastrous neoliberal policies, um, and drowning the the country in in debt that is that then the the you know the burden of of uh, uh, a public that is already kind of struggling uh, economically and socially. This really brings up a lot of issues, what you just said about yeah. um, the the reality of struggle, both in terms of economics, but also in terms of access to health, um, uh, both environmental health, but also like tangible medical health at this time. So I'm wondering, like, the critiques that came forward during this revolution during these protests, um, how are they relevant now? Because there are, there are arguments in Lebanon from different politicians, but also in many places around the world that, okay, well, now is not a time for critique. Now is a time to support the government and be united, etc. But that's hard to do when people are lacking access to health, especially right now, and to health care. So I'm just wondering, like, if you had any points on, on that. Yeah, I mean, uh, we can see that uh, what the pandemic is doing is highlighting pre-existing uh, social and economic ailments in different societies around the world, and Lebanon is no exception. Um, first of all, I mean, I'll, I'll give, I'll, I'll use an anecdote which is both uh, hilarious and uh, very, very sad, uh, which is. Um, the, you know, um, medical masks in Lebanon today 
are being distributed by uh, the same political parties which the revolution has since November uh, been been fighting against um, or you know uh, I mean that it's it, it's one the revolution is one iteration right like it, it, it didn't come out of nothing so yes, of anyway anyway so 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 the the political parties are not just distributing medical masks, they're actually printing their logos on these medical masks. And so you have this violent and uh, hilariously violent uh, uh, demonstration of uh, political theatrics to kind of regain um, uh, political power in, in such dire times, right? Uh, wow. Where desperation becomes uh you know exacerbated by the pandemic and um and while you know uh, activists are being cracked down on the tents are being dismantled from different uh, spaces laws are being passed without uh, due uh, transparency and and the political parties are very much convening and gathering yeah. uh, and organizing and uh, and uh, you know that one of the visual manifestations yeah, yeah. Of, of such power is is and very on the nose right like literally on our hey, noses, hey. On, on our faces um, you have these logos printed on 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 uh, on people's uh, you know people's uh, 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 faces um, and uh, yeah, and and it's a very kind of uh, yeah, wow. very wow. that's crazy. Uh, very ugly, yeah. Uh, re um, and, and you know you can take that example and kind of expand it on food uh, rations and 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 you know this, this is the this is the, the the ugly side. Now, if if I may, I I should. I, I must say that uh, a lot of uh, uh, activist groups that were that were organizing that the revolution that that you know were ready for for uh, for the the revolutionary moment and and took the revolution where it where it needed to go um, and to, today are and, and then the revolution of course in a kind of in a in a beautiful cycle also allowed us come together and organize more and and uh, uh, you know and think of language and uh, um, and strategies and uh, and come up with alternative media come up with alternative uh, unions um, that that uh, and by alternative I mean uh, that are uh, um, that present an alternative to the oligarchy, an alternative to the, the ruling uh, political parties, the traditionally ruling po political parties, um, and and today, uh, uh, despite the quarantine, um, are trying to um, organize around the politics of solidarity. Right? I mean, yes. this is key not just for Lebanon but for humanity today. Because the right is organizing, and we need to organize back, right? And I think that you know, the 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 the, the moment today calls for solidarity, solidarity, solidarity. Uh, that's our only line of flight out of uh, what otherwise is a culture of fear, um, 
that uh, that that can be compounded to even a you know a more conservative um, and uh, you know a yeah. more conservative future. Do you mind just highlighting the ways that uh, people are not able to access healthcare at this time and and the economics of that? Right. So Lebanon. Uh, you know, Lebanon, just like the example of the the, the Bistri Valley, um, and and that kind of uh, extractionist uh, infrastructure, the medical infrastructure in um, in Lebanon is very much privatized, um, and so uh, you know the privatization is not just of an extraction is not just of, of public space, but also public services, including healthcare. And so, um, although we do have a social uh, social security program that was uh, initiated probably by the only uh, president that matters in, in Lebanese contemporary history, um, Hub, um but. Uh, and this is I'm I'm talking about the 60s, right? So okay. it's that dated, and it's it, it 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 it's that kind of it's a it's a crumbling system of um of of a of a like a now very important public service, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you have a single uh, and you know I'm I'm gonna talk about this, but I I I'm no reference. To like to to the specifics of the healthcare system in Lebanon, but what I know today is that there's a single public hospital that is dealing with all um, COVID-19 cases, wow. and uh, that private hospitals are refusing uh, to hospitalize any um, any any uh, any COVID cases. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, all that pressure is uh, going on, uh, on, a, on a, on a, on a public healthcare infrastructure yeah. that is lack, like that, 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 that is lacking in, um, in, in, uh, regular normal, uh, times, uh, let alone today in a pandemic and, um, you know that that that's that's uh, one thing. Another thing is that the social security um, coverage is uh, is um, very very basic, yeah. and most people in Lebanon actually have private insurance. So you can imagine marginalized and um, lower income uh, classes. And I say marginalized and lower income because it's kind of sometimes it's double trouble right sure, so sure. for example palestinian refugees are both marginalized and lower income classes and um uh, because they're 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 marginalized in, in different ways uh, infrastructurally so uh so yeah so 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 uh, these uh, these uh, sections of society don't have private insurance, can't afford private insurance, and so they again have um, are are much more vulnerable. You mentioned uh, the reality of uh, governments around the world right now relying on public infrastructure to get through the context of this 
of this crisis. And um, I mean, every context is very different, of course. Um, you know, countries in the G7 economies, the neo-colonial economies are not in the same situation. Um, right. However, even in Canada, right now, it's pretty clear that the the private sector or private institutions are not playing a major role in dealing with this pandemic. I mean, it's public hospital systems, it's public uh, social security systems, you know, obviously. Right. Um, so, so I'm just wondering, like, yeah, if you uh, uh, we're talking about the context of Lebanon, and you know, yeah, the the public healthcare infrastructure that was set up even before the civil war, um, that is now being crunched. Uh, the 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 and and obviously has not gotten the funding that it needs, especially with private healthcare systems becoming so important. But yeah, I'm just wondering about this reliance on public, and if you have anything to to, to share about that in general. I mean, like, what does it yeah. tell us about it? Like, I mean, uh, there's an obvious uh, argument of like, well, this sh shows us that well, the private sector is not going to really get us through these difficult times. But I, I yeah, I mean, given that you've been on, you know involved in issues in many different places. I'm just wondering if, if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, so in Lebanon, I see this again as like the chance for um, the, you know, for, for, for um, different sides, which are not the government, to uh, play the government's role. And we, we have this, um, this false kind of um, idea in Lebanon that there is no government, right? Like that we have to rely on hmm. uh, political parties, uh, on um, on NGOs for um, and on NGOs for uh, basic public services, including um, healthcare. And I, I gave the example of. The, you know the the, the medical man. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah. yeah. So so um, yeah. For for me, this is just kind of another. Uh, and I say so one one thing at a time. Okay. So one one point is I say that it's a false idea that the government is is weak is because we've seen how strong the government is uh, during the revolution. Um, you know the the the, milita the militarized police, the equipment, the intelligence uh, 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 reach uh, yeah. both uh, both uh, you know on the ground and digitally. Um, uh, the the personnel, the training. Uh, I mean the 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 Lebanese government is not weak. It's very strong, and um, it 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 fails. Um, to uh, support its people, where it, it's not, uh, you know, it's 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 not uh, 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 it does not provide public services uh, when it needs to. Correct, but um, it, that does not mean that it's a weak government. I see. Um, that's one thing that I I just wanted to put out there. Yeah, that's Second, yeah, yeah. The second thing is that, uh, you know, where the government fails, um, 
you know, it does not fail to oppress, um, and and uh, and and it it but it fails to and these go in tandem. It fails to provide public service, including healthcare, and this is where um, you know religious. Um, uh, politi- traditional political parties um, and uh, uh, you know uh, uh, foreign aid come in to uh, you know provide for uh, people what uh, a government should be providing, and so I don't see this. I don't see uh, the U.S. scenario. Um, where you know, oh, Bernie was was right all along, and the private sector is killing us, uh, uh, you know, in the thousands now, and we need we need universal healthcare. I don't see that happening in Lebanon. What I see is again this uh, kind of falling back onto um, the infrastructures. Um, that have traditionally uh, provided for uh, public services for for people that uh, and and healthcare for people so, uh, that's yeah. one mm-hmm. but but two again i would say this is an opportunity for uh, for activists in the revolution to organize and to to create uh, these um, alternatives um, that are solidarity based Okay. That uh, you know that uh, look to um, uh, self-sufficiency and alternative economies, the gifting economies that uh, that that circumvent uh, you know the the neoliberal machine. That was a conversation with Razan El Salah who is a filmmaker and activist, uh, works with a group in Montreal called Solidarité Montréal, which has been doing support work for the the protests for justice that have been taking place in Lebanon over this past year. Next, I just wanted to share a piece of music by the great Tracy Chapman. Here on earth. 
imagine forgiveness and sacrifice Heaven's in our hearts In our faith in humankind In our respect for what is earthly show I wanted to um, share some parts of an exchange I had with Samin Abhar who is a medical student uh, will be going into residency soon uh, Samin lives in Victoria in uh, in Canada uh, and is also my brother-in-law but I thought it would be interesting to talk with Samin about his perspective on the pandemic uh, he's been studying um, medicine for many years working towards uh, becoming a doctor He's almost uh, at the end of this um, period of study. And so I thought it'd be cool to talk with a family member about their perspectives on the pandemic. So this is my chat with uh, Samin. 
basically what it comes down to is whether the government wants to basically give enough resources to the hospitals to the the medical system um, in order to fight a, a pandemic that's what it comes down to and it's it's a moral choice really um, on behalf of the government whether they want to actually fight this uh, pandemic or not uh, whether they find that the economy is more important uh, or whether the uh, the people are more important so it that's what it comes down to and um, so you have a lot of so in the case of the states the reason why there's I mean they're number one in in infection uh, is because there's so much misinformation going on from the top down um, you have I mean, you have uh, Republicans that are just saying one thing and then the uh, health department saying another thing. You have representatives and senators saying one thing. And so it's very discombobulated. And so as a result, you'll get people who are extremely confused uh, and will, you know, and will not adhere to the um, the rules of social distancing, the rules of quarantining, staying at home, uh, knowing what the symptoms are. So it's all about whether the government is unified and uh, willing to share the right information to its people uh, and, t- and taking it seriously rather than not taking it seriously like the U.S. government is right now. Yeah, I mean, I think like these types of situations are obviously very difficult and they're a tragedy. It's, uh-huh. There's a lot of people experiencing great loss and pain right now. Uh-huh. Um, but this is also like throughout history, there are many examples of these types of pandemics. I mean, not all the time, but I mean, uh-huh. I mean, if we're talking about history in a broad sense. Um, uh-huh. So again, like, I'm just wondering, like, going forward, like, um, after this is finished, there will be a lot of arguments about, like, where finances should go, how they should be allocated, you know, and we already hear, like, for example, in Canada, the Conservative Party talking about, oh, we're, we're going to have to pay for all this. But one, one thing that comes up is the idea of preparedness and public institutions to deal with it. You mentioned it. So I'm just wondering if you could talk about like that sort of choice and why it's important to not just think about like the present moment in terms of health policy, but you know, Uh more broadly and more long-term. Well, of course, I mean, dealing with a, you know, with, with a virus or, uh, with something, uh, like a bacterial infection or whatever it obviously, you know, if there's no vaccine for it, if there's no, you know, cure for it, uh, and it has a high spread, um, it's going to be difficult no matter what. I mean, you're not going to be really, truly prepared, um, per, you know, perfectly. You're not going to be perfectly prepared for something like that, obviously. Um, so what it comes down to is um, 
and and because it takes time, like it takes time for for a cure to happen, it takes time for a vaccine to come out. Like vaccines aren't something that just you know you can just kind of study it and then you know in a month it'll you know it'll come out and then you can give it to everyone. There's you know there's uh, there are steps into making these vaccines, especially for viruses that you know that haven't been studied very well. So it, it's all about. Um, it's all about the government listening to health institutions and being on the same page so that when it does, when something like this does happen, it allows for there to be good communication between the two. And when there's good communication, then that can be presented to the public. And then when there is that unity between the institutions, then naturally it's going to come about uh, in, in, in the society as well. Mm. So that, that's what it comes down to. It's, are we ready to set aside um, what's least important in terms of, you know, the money, the, you know, the econ- I mean, the economy is important, but people's lives are more important. Let's just be real. Like, that's, that's what's really important. And once we start understanding that and having the unity within our institutions, then that's when the road will be a lot smoother mm-hmm. um, rather than what we have right now, unfortunately. Well, yeah, I mean, often when we when we talk about the budgets for healthcare, I mean, we live in Canada and there's a public healthcare system, but it's often sort of perceived to be or... I can feel at least it's my 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 opinion that you feel like this tone in the media that it's this burden and it's sort of like this irritant for the budget, you know, like that. Well, you know, this has to be spent, but that sucks. You know, it's a lot of money, basically. Right. Um, right. But I, I mean, I mean, I hope that this will sort of shift perspectives on that. I don't, I don't know what you definitely think. definitely. And, and that's and that that's a perfect like uh, example of it is you're seeing our neighbors in the South struggling mightily right now with their current healthcare system because you have so much rigmarole, you have so much red tape when it comes to insurance-based healthcare that you have, I mean, millions upon millions. I think, I believe it's about 40 to 47 million people in the United States are currently uninsured. So you have that huge lot of people who are uninsured, who are scared to go see their doctor, who are scared to go to the hospital, who are scared to call an ambulance because why? They're going to have to pay out of pocket. And so what happens to those 47 million people? Obviously not all of the 47 million people, but for the majority of them, when, uh, you know, when they are if if they were exposed to the virus or if they were exposed to someone who had the virus what do you think their first thought is going to be my first thought is going to be how am i going to pay for this how, like the moral dilemma that is put upon these poor people is is absurd you know at its core and so and and that's only for the people who are uninsured imagine for the people who are insured and who can't even afford their own insurance. You know, so you have millions and millions of people. And I mean, it's just an absolute, 
disaster what's happening in the South right now in in uh, in in America, and so you know so I mean that's a prime example of when you don't have unity within your institutions, what could potentially happen? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's just very obvious what, what we're seeing right now in America. Um, yeah, I guess just last question. Um, like how, how are you feeling like as somebody who works in healthcare and somebody who's, who's studied, I mean, yes, not epidemiology, but, uh-huh. studied human health and yeah. I mean it's really like a turning point and it's a pivotal moment in terms of like how we perceive issues of social health um, uh-huh. also uh-huh. personal health how the two are connected I'm just wondering Definitely. like what you've been thinking about well I've been thinking about um, how there are I mean millions and millions of people out there that are just feeling so anxious you know, about not only themselves, but their family. Um, obviously, you know, we all have uh, elderly family members or, or friends um, that could be potentially affected by this, um, by this virus that could potentially kill them. And, um, and so, you know, the younger generation, of course, um, the majority of us, we won't be affected too much by it. It's, it, I mean, the symptoms are very similar to the common cold uh, and, and the flu. But the issue here is that, uh, A, it has a higher rate of infection uh, than, than the flu. And, uh, and B, it could uh, potentially harm those who are in the elderly uh, population and those who are immunocompromised and could potentially kill them. So the anxiety level rises, right? Uh, and especially during a pandemic. And so, you know, those are the things personally for me, that's what I'm thinking about is how are my loved ones going to be affected by this? Um, and, um, you know, the only thing that we can do at this point in time is to adhere to our, you know, our, our health officials and, and be vigilant uh, with, you know, the social distancing and um, quarantining ourselves. But even that, like, you know, we can get into the economics of it, how millions and millions of people are working class people and getting the funds necessary to actually quarantine and, uh, you know, stay home from work, sometimes it's just not even a viable option. So, you know, and, and again, anxiety rises from that because can I pay my rent on time? Can I pay the bills on time? Can I feed my family? You know, like, so these are the thing because there's no work, right? Factories shut down, stores shut down. And so it's, it's, it's just, it's very, it's very unfortunate for those people who don't have, for those working people who don't have the savings that they need to actually stay at home and adhere to what, uh, you know, to what the public institutions want us to do. And so maybe looking forward, as you asked before, like, what sort of thing can we, you know, prepare ourselves for is how can we best help the majority of the people who are working class people 
how can we best help them in these times of crises? Uh, trying to get aid to them a lot faster, you know, like setting aside a, you know, some, you know, setting aside a fund, in, you know, in, in the government for these types of cases where you'll have massive, massive amounts of unemployment so that we can subsidize these, uh, you know, uh, these situations. So, you know, I mean, that that's one thing that I can think of is, is just the anxiety of all these millions and millions of people that can't go to work, can't provide for their family, and have to live day by day fearing of, of not only their own health, but their loved one's health as well. That was Samin Abhar, uh, who is a medical student, will be starting his medical residency soon, uh, working towards becoming a doctor. He's also my brother-in-law. I wanted to share some perspectives uh, that he had about this pandemic. So now I wanted to um, highlight a piece of music, um, poetry, out of New York City from Anne Waldman. This is from Anne Waldman's upcoming album. It will feature Laurie Anderson, William Parker, many other great artists. And um, it was produced by Devin Braja Waldman, who's also my friend. And um, I thought it would be... Um, great to share a piece from uh this upcoming album thank you braja for sharing this um so here we go you make up things, you are dangerous, ever in incantation. You are aggregate, porous, ahistorical, don't get it, don't get it, ridding the world of all but you. Humble objects, where are they? Everywhere in the landscape, you notice? Go be looking, that tree which is an ash, sit down under the walking trees and want to have legs in ink and want to be my own portrait, a full portrait. Ink will tell it all, light and shade, nuance of the hidden, a bee in the ear of the human, the starling in the beak of the human, how talk to the wind and come to God.
If the warmonger is inventing a battle cry, he, always he, is ready to go. And he thinks, I am a god. I am a god. I am a god. I am a, 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 a god. You'll notice by an easy slogan, words will be cheap. I am a god. It's simple words that are signaling assemblages that have power. If the warmonger is insistent, he's surprising himself, he's then turning to the mirror of himself to worship himself, and then turning if he seems to trace an enemy. He needs to do this. He will. It is what he is doing. An imprint for the sight, for the habit. This is the apparatus of becoming. Enemy is the creation of a warring god realm, of becoming embattled, becoming isolated, and a kind of ghostly corporeality. Knows no solitude, the karmic nightmare, scaffolded doom. Bought nature inside and ripped its guts. No umbrage, the warrior a sum total. But with Dorjan and Purban, brandishing power, late in capital, late in tears. What happened to the vast landscape outside? How do you fold the metaphor for your sensation filtered out of memory? Love? What was it? Only after a kill could you love? Could you love your own death? Experience a passing through? There is no enemy but the one manufactured. A beautiful enemy Worthier than you are, hold secrets of, Ink knows this in creating weaponry, lights the optic nerve. Look long and hard, you will be a machine of death. The drawings are complex, they fly and then go up in the sky. You can be a child again, and as you die, you see red. Ink knows the creation of enemy. Ink would be harmonious in duty, would be harmless, blind, unseen, were it not the enemy calling ink to task. Intelligent in becoming, if it weren't for enemy flailing its wares, ever new economics of things go tonally gray. The marks respond to an inner clock, wind down and explode. A grid, a grip, spirals loop and waves in play when it is blood.
kind of revelation. And he was recognized by uniform. The terracotta warrior inside the mine. The pink of rocks becoming a pink of sky as you die. Selling weapons you love to make to the enemy. Ink settles here like the blood it is. Ink making a kind of ancestry. A mark, a rapid deployment, a swift calculation. Though you sit thousands, thousands of miles away, consult your chart of doom. Recoil the web of entrapment, alternative realism, conviction, 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 the ink says. It says right here we must win. Ink is the challenge. Ink a drawing as embodiment of idea. Last call before you amass wealth. Ink is a method to see our concept of the world. A world of undulation. Like the sea creatures remember when they are in the sea. And stroke as they drown. Exorcisms
That was Anne Waldman, uh, artist in New York City, uh, with the piece Extinction Aria from her upcoming album, Look Out For That. Um, thank you, Devin Braja Waldman, for sharing that. Um, really appreciate it. Also on the show today, um, to follow up on previous Free City radio broadcasts, I wanted to uh, highlight a voice of a worker. I've been making an effort on the program to basically highlight the voices of people who are still working uh, in the service industry, uh, which is also another one of the front lines in the context of this pandemic. Um, so I had the opportunity to speak with Mohammed, uh, who is a night shift worker and baker at the Tim Hortons on uh, Jean Talon, just outside of Park Metro. Uh, it's open 24 hours still here in Montreal. It's very busy, so I thought it would be um, meaningful to hear what um, Mohammed had to say. Okay, well, I'm here um, on Jean Talon Street. I'm with Mohammed, who's a night shift worker. Hey. Hi. How you feeling? Good, and you? Good. So I, I've been by a few times this spot, and um, uh, you're often on the night shift. I know it's a long, long shift, um, dealing also with a lot of people uh, here who maybe don't have anywhere to go at nighttime, uh, getting the restaurant ready for the day. Uh, all of this happening during the COVID-19 crisis. So how's it been going for you? I don't know. For me, it's okay. I have less customers. But sometimes people doesn't, doesn't understand that they can't stay in the store. So we, I always have to tell them to go outside. And yeah, because yeah, usually at this, at this Tim Hortons, people like are usually gathering here and hanging out. And so it's a totally different situation. Yep. Yeah. Everything has changed. Is it stressful? Sometimes a little bit. Yeah. Like how? Because. So you're here. You're here all night usually. Yep. But the work is easier. Okay. Because now I don't. I don't really clean the. I have less space to clean. Sure. As, sure. as you can see. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a whole different situation. Yeah. Everything. So I guess um, you're watching what's happening here with the pandemic, but you're also watching what's happening all around the world. Yeah. Thinking about your family. Yeah. Yeah. Bit. How how's that? I don't know, because um, my dad is a little bit sick. He has a problem from breathing, and I'm scared that he catches the virus. Because I know that a lot of people that has died from this virus because they have breathing problems yeah. and now I'm scared that my dad like, catches it. So you're always thinking about it? I'm just scared. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But at the same time you're keeping working. A yeah. lot of people are staying at home right now and they're talking a lot on social media, on Facebook about they feel frustrated to stay at home but a lot of people still are going out to work. Why? Why is it important for people to think about the people who actually are still working, like yourself? Because I constantly have to speak with people. And like, I'm always in contact with people, so it's a little bit stressful. Because I don't know, like we never know if people have it and they're going to give it to me. Yeah, that's true. So I guess when you get home, you have to clean up. Yep. And even when I finish my shift, we have to wash our hands. And even when I come, I have to wash my hands. 
Okay, yeah, of course. And now we have to wash our hands every 30 minutes. Okay. And we have to wear gloves. Sure, sure. So there's all these precautions. Yep. Wow, wow. Um, are you, uh, are, is there any music you're listening to these days that's helping you? Yeah, yeah, we always put music in the Yeah, life. what type of music? Sometimes Arabic songs, yeah. sometimes English songs. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. It helps. It helps you in the yeah. meantime, huh? Yeah. You got different music from around the world. Yeah. Right on. Yeah, I like music. Right on. Mm. Thanks for talking to me, Mohammed. You're welcome. Thanks, bro. That was uh, Mohammed, uh, who is a night shift worker at the Tim Hortons outside of uh, the Park Metro here in Montreal. Um, wanted to share his voice. I've been working here on Free City Radio to highlight um, different frontline workers, particularly low wage workers, that continue to um, contribute to uh, society and their workplaces in the context of this pandemic. It's obviously not an easy um, situation. Following up from that, I wanted to play a piece of music by George Wasouf. Uh, I'd heard uh, George Wasouf at that um, Tim Hortons um, one night. Uh, it's open 24 hours and it's not that far from where I live. So I'll go and speak with the workers sometimes, um, get a quick tea, coffee, and um, also wanted to try to highlight them on this show. So I took a bit of talking and um, I wanted to play a piece of music I heard there from George Wasouf. Now 
يوم ولا بالوقت حتأثر بكلام الناس كلام الناس كلام الناس كلام الناس كلام الناس لا 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 لا, لا بيقدم ولا يأخر Thank you. 
That was George Wasouf uh, here on Free City Radio. Also on the broadcast today, I wanted to uh, play an excerpt of a conversation I had with uh, writer and researcher Eve Angler. He's published many books. A lot of them have looked at uh, Canadian foreign policy from a critical point of view. And I thought it was really important to uh, highlight uh, Eve's voice right now. He has written an important piece for Canadian Dimension magazine about an arms agreement that Canada has signed with Saudi Arabia since the COVID-19 crisis began and since uh, there has been a lockdown. Um, so I thought it was important to highlight a critical voice on this arms agreement between Canada and Saudi Arabia. So I guess, first of all, like there is a lot of um, reporting going on about these daily briefings by Trudeau. Of course, a huge focus of these briefings is... COVID-19 and the government's response. Um, but in parallel to responding to this pandemic, there are, are still decisions being made in regards to foreign policy, in regards to economics. Of course, a lot of economics are linked to this crisis. But one issue that has gotten some play in the, um, in the media is the issue of Canada's new arms agreement with Saudi Arabia it was reported in the Globe and Mail. Um, but uh, it is pretty important in terms of like rhetoric that the liberals has have had in regards to human rights in Saudi Arabia. So I'm just wondering like why it's important for us to look critically at this. And also if you could break down a bit about um, this agreement and w what it entails. Yeah, so the government announced uh, on Thursday that uh, it was um, ending its suspension or freeze of uh, uh, arms export permits to uh, Saudi Arabia, which had been in place for uh, a little over a year since uh, November, I believe, of 2018. And, uh, and so they announced the... Uh, the uh, ending of that, and and uh, and they also announced that they had renegotiated the uh, light, light armored vehicle sale, the fourteen billion dollar contract, um, where uh, uh, vehicles or basically tanks um, from from uh, a plant in London, Ontario, uh, are being. Uh, Delivered to Saudi Arabia over 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 from from over a decade long uh, uh, period, and uh, um, that's a, a, a contract that is uh, it's a you know a, a private corporation a, you know a branch plant of a U.S. company that's delivering the vehicles, uh, but it's a contract that is actually the Commercial Corporation of Canada, which is a crown corporation that has uh, negotiated the contract and is responsible for the contract. So it's uh, effectively a government 
uh, to government contract between Canada and Saudi Arabia. Um, and yeah, it's so a, just, obviously a big... I'm sorry, just, just to look at that uh, a little bit, this idea of the Crown Corporation and the fact that there was a government-to-government contract, I realize there's a connection to the previous Conservative government, but obviously the Liberal government has a role in deciding on how and if this moves forward. Could you just break down the role of a Crown Corporation in this p- particular example and why it's important to... To, to focus on that fact? Well, the, the government tried to frame it as if it's just a commercial contract between you know, a private Canadian company and, and, the, and the Saudis, but in fact, um, it's overseen by the Canadian government. By, you know, if things go awry, it's the, ultimately the you know, Canadian taxpayers that, that are on the hook. Um, there's also a... Uh, there's a major part of it that's training uh, uh, facilities, uh, training the uh, Saudi officials, um, and uh, including um, some some indication of Canadian military that have been involved in some of this training. Um, but the the Canadian Commercial Corporation is is a is a crown corporation that that spends that mostly what it does is it it. Uh, uh, it uh, contracts uh, armored uh, military weapon sales uh, internationally. So it's Canada's basically um, crown corporation to stoke uh, uh, international weapon sales. Um, so I think just that in and of itself, the fact that the Canadian government has such an entity that is going around the world trying to uh, develop weapon sales, um, that in and of itself should be something that's... Uh, uh, somewhat controversial um, uh, beyond just a you know private corporation um, uh, delivering uh, weapons, um, and so so the but but and and the Trudeau government you know the, the, the negotiations for the contract began during the Harper government time, but Stéphane Dion, former foreign foreign affairs minister, um, had to okay the uh, the export permits, and if you look at um, uh, part of his explanation, part of the rationale for okaying the export permits of the light armored vehicle sale to, to the Saudis, it was on the grounds that um, Saudi Arabia was uh, helping to um, to deliver uh, stability in Yemen. So they explicitly linked the light armored vehicle sale to the war in Yemen. This is about a year into the war in Yemen. Now that war in Yemen is left more than 100,000 people dead. Um, it's much more controversial today than it was then, though it was already controversial uh, uh, back then. Um, and uh, and and part of the rationale the gov- the, the Trudeau government is making for um, restarting uh, uh, um, permits, new new uh, permits for arms sales in Saudi Arabia, is that the they did a, a, a internal um, report review that concluded there was no link between Canadian weapons sales um, to the Saudi monarchy and human rights violations. Uh, but at the same time, they explicitly linked previously they explicitly linked selling or one of the rationales for selling uh, light armored vehicles to the Saudis was was the war in Yemen. Anyone who pays superficial attention to what's going on in Yemen knows the Saudis have been responsible for incredible levels of, of human rights violations. Um, so, so there's being, um, you know, talking on sort of two sides. Um, when the government, uh, did their review of the, uh, of, um, 
the question of Canadian suspension or freeze of export uh, arms export permits to the Saudi to Saudi Arabia, um, they stated at that time there were 48 different permits awaiting approval uh, of the foreign of the foreign minister of or of Global Affairs Canada. So presumably there's even more, uh, um, uh, you know, today. Um, so. Presumably, almost immediately, there will be at least 48 and probably more uh, different contracts of Canadian uh, um, arms companies uh, to Saudi Arabia. Now, it's important to state that while there was this, this freeze on new export permits, that didn't stop Canadian weapons from being delivered to Saudi Arabia. There was there were record years, in fact, of 2018, 2019 were record years in Canadian arms deliveries to the Saudis, uh, not just of, of armored vehicles, uh, but also of rifles. Uh, um, and uh, just in February, uh, there was $155.5 million in Canadian um, uh, 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 armored vehicles delivered uh, to Saudi Arabia. So in 2018-2019, it was about $2 billion a year, uh, maybe slightly above that, of, of, of weaponry uh, delivered from Canada to Saudi Arabia. So during all these human rights violations taking place in Saudi Arabia, both you know, the Saudis uh, perpetrating in, in Yemen, but also, of course, the domestic repression, um, the Saudis' involvement in Syria, Saudi involvement um, uh, throughout the throughout the region, Canada has been fueling, uh, providing weaponry to the Saudis uh, while they're uh, engaged in those human rights uh, uh, violations. So in terms of... Um the human cost, not just of the war in Yemen, but also Saudi human rights violations. I mean, in the last 10 years, there was systemic repression of protests, especially within the Shia communities of Saudi Arabia, but not only. And also, of course, many human rights activists are in jail right now in Saudi Arabia. Um, just for people to understand what this means in terms of like human lives, um, I'm just wondering if you could share uh, any particular stories or cases or sort of thoughts you have about the actual human cost of what this complicity with the Saudi government through this arms contract by Canada means. Well, it, it, it just provides, I don't think we should claim that the Saudis would, if Canada, you know, stopped selling weapons or strenuously objected to, Saudi human rights violations that they would just all stop, you know, tomorrow or anything like that. I, I'm not. I don't think that this Canada is a, you know, sort of a, a peripheral player in, you know, contribution to to these human rights violations. Um, but it's not. Uh, it's it's not nothing. Um, we know that when the Saudis um, were repressing. Uh, you know, demolished whole whole towns in in the east of the country when they were repressing the Shia Shia population a few years ago. There were images of Canadian light armored vehicles that 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 were were uh, were found you know found on the scene because Canada has been selling light armored vehicles to Saudis going back to the early at least the early 1990s in, in quite large uh, uh, quantities. We know that there are Canadian made rifles um, that keep appearing in Yemen. Uh, um, that Anthony Fenton has documented numerous, probably into the dozens of examples of Canadian made weaponry um, um, that are appear in, 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 you know, in Yemen. Um, so, so, you know, can you link this as a, as a one-to-one -one that, that if, if Canada, 
you know, stopped selling weapons to the Saudis uh, or had never sold weapons to the Saudis instead of 100,000 people dead in Yemen, there would only be, you know, 95,000 people dead. Or is it 99,000? Is it 90,000? I, I can't, you know, I don't think you can quantify it in, in terms of ex- exactly what it would lead to uh, in, 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 you know, in less... Um, uh, rights violations, um, but but it certainly wouldn't uh, by by you know stopping these sales and 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 by being more uh, clear in our in our condemnation. This other part it is important to note is that the 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 Trudeau government has been prepared to criticize a number of uh, Saudi uh, human rights violations domestically. Um, uh, they have uh, you know the killing of Khashoggi. Uh, uh, they. They have been very hesitant to criticize the Saudi-led uh, uh, bombing campaign war in, in Yemen. They, for the first three years, they were in office. That wasn't until November uh, 2018 that they leveled the first criticism of of, of Saudi uh, of violations, and that was after Saudis had killed I think like 150 people at a at a at a at a, a, a funeral in uh, in Yemen. Um, and so, so you know, even at the even while they have been willing to make some you know, rhetorical criticisms of the Saudis, you find that simultaneously you can go on the you know, Canadian government's uh, embassy's website in Riyadh and they you know, talk about Saudi Arabia being a force for stability and peace in the region. Um, you comments from Christia Freeland uh, six months, eight months ago, where you know, she talks about Saudi Arabia as being a partner. The Canadian government has tried, while there is this diplomatic, been a diplomatic you know, spat with Saudi Arabia going on for about you know, a year and a half now, the Canadian government consistently has tried to you know, get back to business as usual, to restart uh, uh, full uh, uh, diplomatic uh, relations. Um, and all of these things just give further oxygen to this, this uh, monarchy that is, you know, it, it, unions are illegal, uh, women's rights are, are, are you know, are, are farcical. Um, um, the, they're incredibly belligerent. It's not just in, in Yemen, but if you look at the Saudis' role in, in, uh, in Sudan and being opposed to the, the democracy movement in Sudan, or the Saudis' role in, in, in backing uh, uh, Haftar in, 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 in Libya, um, the Saudi Arabia has been a very uh, belligerent uh, force in the region uh, that sides with the most um, uh, reactionary uh, funds and, and sides with the most reactionary forces uh, uh, throughout the region, and the Canadian government has uh, said basically nothing about about uh, Saudi's support for different uh, uh, anti-democratic forces uh, in the region. Um, so just two questions. Um, one, just quickly on Libya, because I, I feel like it's really important uh, just for people to understand a bit more. Um, the role that not only Saudi Arabia, but other countries, including the United Arab Emirates and Egypt, are playing and supporting Haftar in Libya, but also France, and I guess indirectly Canada. Um, I'm just wondering if you could just mention uh, that, because this is happening right now. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, Libya since NATO's bombing in uh, 2011 has been... uh, you know, very unstable, and uh, and you know, he was, of course, a Canadian general who led that uh, bombing campaign, and there was, uh, um, you know, Canadian fighter jets involved and naval vessels and all kinds of, uh, you know, it technically it had a UN approval, but the way it was conducted was clearly violation of, of of the UN uh, uh, resolutions and 
violation of, of international law. Um, but but in in recent months, uh, there's been a uh, 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 effort to to uh, uh, conquer uh, Tripoli by uh, by Haftar's forces, who's somebody who has long back CIA backing, um, and this is going against a government that's that's. Uh, Recognized by the by the UN and uh, and countries like UAE is right at the forefront have uh, have been uh, you know, helping have been bombing uh, in favor of of of, of Haftar's forces um, and uh, and and other countries like Saudis and um, have uh, have been you know fueling it with weaponry and um, and and this is you know this is a situation that is this is exactly what Libya doesn't need Libya has been in a state of uh, conflict sem- or semi-conflict uh, since at least t- 2011 and the last thing it needs is more weapons being pumped into the country more uh, you know outside forces backing different factions and and you know stoking stoking conflict um and uh and you know this is this is this goes to um the fact that the trudeau government hasn't been vocal in in uh in 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 criticizing um, UAE or Saudi uh, role uh, goes to a a you know the the sort of fundamental um, indifference uh, to human suffering and they they prioritize their relationship um, with these uh, monarchies that are um, uh, have a lot of money to spend on uh, Canadian weaponry and in case of UAE Canada is a, a, a big sells quite a few quite a substantial amount of weapons to the UAE and Canada has very significant presence uh, at the uh, the Abu Dhabi uh, um, arms uh, uh, fair which is the biggest one in, in the region every year and just in 2019 there was there was a uh, Canadian trade commissioners um, Department of National Defense uh, Global Affairs Canada I think 50 different came arms companies that were at the at the uh, IDEX um, uh, exhibit uh, s- selling weapons and and so so you know on one hand we we've been this is under the Trudeau government you know includes under the Harper government before that, but the Trudeau government has continued this deepening ties with with these um, uh, in the case of UAE just completely you know unidimensional in the sense that there's been no you know no hiccup in diplomatic relations with the UAE it's just been deepening of those ties um, as as the UAE is clearly um, on uh, you know contributing to violence in, in Libya but also you know contributing to uh, 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 undermining um, the uh, the democracy movements uh, in, in in Sudan yeah absolutely uh thank you for mentioning that i think the role of canadian arms companies in these international uh, arms trade events including the one in the united arab emirates it's really important also just wanted to note like the canadian government needs to approve um you talked about export permits and i i just wanted to underline that because it's really important in terms of like the canadian government allowing for arms to be exported from canada um, they need to actually give approval, and that's supposed to pass through various layers of bureaucracy that indicates whether or not this agreement, arms agreement, is in accordance with Canadian um, position on international law. So, I mean, there's a lot and, of... And, and, and yeah. human rights, and human rights criteria as well. Yeah. So, thanks for that. I guess the last, the last point I wanted to mention was... Um, 
if you could talk about like like there's a lot of like at this moment there's a lot of sort of support or like fuzzy feelings towards Justin Trudeau because you know he's been speaking to the public about COVID-19 his partner was sick um she's recovered obviously at this point um but I'm wondering like the importance of actually looking at this issue with like clear analytical and factual mind right like because a lot of people would see Justin Trudeau and how he's responded to this and the entire liberal government, inclu including Chris, Chris, Christina Freeland, she goes by Christia, but um, uh, the just, just like how important it is to sort of think about what these policies actually mean in terms of human rights, in terms of war in Yemen, repression in Saudi Arabia, war in Libya. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I, I, I also don't think we should we should uh, um, stop being critical about their policies, specifically around uh, around COVID nineteen. I think that there's there's lots of uh, warnings that have been um, put forward by uh, researchers, by scientists around uh, possibility of a similar type outbreak, and the you know. The Trudeau government and previously the Harper government basically um, ignored those warnings, and and the level of preparedness is not uh, was not um, where it should have been. Um, so yes, if you compare Trudeau's uh, handling of the situation to Donald Trump's handling of the situation, uh, it looks pretty good. Um, but I think if you compare Canada's handling of situation to some of the uh, countries on on China's periphery, um, it doesn't uh, uh, look very good. Yeah, like uh, you, Taiwan specifically. Yeah, and and if you if you if you go further in terms of you know some of their policies, yeah, yes, I, I support uh, the policies around uh, you know in, income for people who've been harmed. Um, but if you uh, delve into further, there you know some of the stuff around bailing out the oil companies and stuff like that. Um, that is you know not the direction that 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 we should go. But yeah, I mean I think Justin Trudeau, uh, you know, compared to uh, um, some of the other. Uh, heads of state around, uh, you know, uh, it looks okay, but I mean that's a pretty that's a pretty uh, uh, low bar, um, and uh, and uh, you know I think I think we can you can be um, I think it's clear that there's some need for in these kind of contexts there's some need for um, uh, I wouldn't say follow the leader I don't think that's not the help but there's some need for you know people maybe holding it back a little bit with some of um, the criticism uh, uh, in the moment because there is a need to, to sort of follow the follow the plan if you like um, but 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 I think we should we can also do that in a context of still being uh, critical of what you know what should have happened specifically on 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 the on the pandemic but also um, uh, uh, um, being conscious about other policies that they're pursuing uh, around the world, uh, here at home, that are that are you know not um, in the direction of enhancing human rights, but rather in the direction of, of uh, undercutting uh, uh, human rights. Thanks, uh, Eve. Thank you. That was an interview with um, Eve Angler, who's a writer, researcher, author, community activist in Montreal. 
I wanted to play uh, his voice because I thought it was really important for people to think critically about this arms agreement that has been signed between Canada and Saudi Arabia. It's um, really shocking that this has been signed in the context of the pandemic. This is a multi-billion dollar arms agreement. Um, and uh, I think it's really important that we speak critically about this arms agreement and look into it. Um, I was able the other day to drop a banner on Saint Laurent Street um, here in Montreal, not far from the intersection of Van Horn on the train bridge there. And it said, um, stop arms agreements to Saudi Arabia from Canada. And uh, I wanted to try to highlight this issue, which I feel is very, very important. So next with a piece of music, I wanted to highlight um, my friend David Mitchell is involved with this band here in Montreal. Uh, the band's called Bas Relief, and I wanted to uh, play the track Treif.
That was a piece by the group Bass Relief from their album Quiet Time. We heard the track Treif. Thanks for tuning in to this broadcast. Uh, it's been a pleasure to um, it's been a pleasure to share this uh, sixth edition of the Free City Radio podcast with you. And uh, I wanted to finish uh, the podcast today with a piece that I worked on with my brother because uh, I'm missing him a lot right now and um, thinking of him. Uh, this is from an album that we worked on called Macedonians. Our, our project is called Anarchist Mountains. Of course, Macedonians is uh, referencing our heritage as Macedonians uh, here in Canada. Um, this is a duet that we worked on. Um, it was released um, out of St. Petersburg, Russia. Uh, this is a piece called Mountains at Night here on Free City Radio.
This has been the sixth edition of Free City Radio Podcast. Thanks for uh, listening. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Uh, do keep it locked uh, here on the podcast. Um, you can find us every Wednesday at 11 a.m. on CKUT. And also please subscribe to our podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts, other platforms. Give us a rating, uh, review, uh, share with any friends. If you want to reach me with any ideas towards the podcast or programming ideas, you can contact me at stefan.christoff at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. So thanks for being with us. And I will end the program today with a duet that I heard at Casa del Popolo, where I work. Um, well, not now. Uh, it's closed in the context of the pandemic, but where I will work when it opens back up. This is a duet by Alison de Groot and Tatiana Hargreaves. Um, it's from their album that was released on Free Dirt Records. It's a beautiful track. Mm-hmm.